Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and contexts of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode, we'll see Gas and myself and our illustrious co-hosts give our take on an important movie monster and or film, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today, we're discussing an incredibly cool, uh, not even an entity really, more more like a, a set of entities that have different variations in different, you know, parts of North America. Uh, but we're discussing um, a set of entities that have a deep background in the lore of many First Nations and Native American tribes. The Wendigo, although it, it, it's kind of funny because uh, if, if you dig into it, we call it the Wendigo and it's always spelled one particular way, but it actually has a lot of individual variations of what it's called across North America. So it's going to be fun. We love it. And uh, I look forward, folks at home, to exploring it with you and our illustrious co-hosts. So fans of the show can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and wherever your podcasts are served. And follow us on Twitter at HFT Deep Dive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I basically just write about everything film and TV related at Forbes and Slash Film and Looper. And I write about and podcast about and think about and dream about and do a lot of nerdy stuff about monsters all day, all the time. And you know that because you're here. Uh, And uh, I'm so pleased to introduce our excellent uh, co-host for today's episode. Uh, We got got everybody, which means we got everybody that matters. Andre Couture, Luna and we, Mike Vaughn, all joining us for today's episode. Say hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. <laughs> I don't follow the rules. What's <laughs> up? <laughs> I do what I want. Um, and uh, folks at home, you'll you'll see this for yourself, but uh, we just had a... <laughs> Luna's had a very busy day, and uh, I, there, there's a strong possibility she's going to turn into Wendigo as we record live so strong possibility <laughs> y'all are in for a treat yeah, you may even be able to pinpoint the exact moment it happens in this episode yeah exactly we'll, we'll excerpt <laughs> that for you up front um because we are so committed to bringing you the best in monster content yes yes i i planned this all along my sanity is slowly slipping away just for you <laughs> is that like an <laughs> antler growing that i hear no nom, nom, oh. nom, nom. <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh it's interesting too because we're gonna do this uh as a folklore centric episode because there's so many different variations and there's a lot of different media that have interpreted the wendigo in different ways and so we're gonna focus instead of focusing around one film interpretation first we're going to talk about the folklore and the history a little bit and then dig into the different interpretations uh, in in uh, various books and movies, etc. That that you know means something to us that we think are are interesting. 
So it's interesting because uh, if you you look at Wendigos in in mythology, they're they're usually a forced dwelling creature in the in the folklore of many Native American and First Nations peoples, and there's a lot of differences, as I mentioned before, in terminology and in attributes. Kind of a wide range of interpretations. For example, according to most Algonquin oral traditions, uh, a Wendigo is a cannibalistic monster. Often in a lot of these, the, the core is that it's a cannibalistic monster that used to be a person, like a human. But in these traditions, it's it's a cannibalistic monster that preys on the weak, socially disconnected, the isolated. In most virgin versions of the traditional legend, a human becomes a Wendigo after... Uh, his or her spirit is corrupted by greed, weakened by extreme conditions, hunger, cold. And then in some legends, humans become Wendigos when possessed by, there's like a, a spiritual possession that happens by the spirit of the Wendigo. And so when they hit a particular moment of weakness to it, that's when it happens. The spelling and the pronunciation of the word Wendigo uh, differs wildly depending on the particular uh, North American uh, tribe that we're talking about so you'll see you know w- when you look at like wendigo adaptations in for example film these days it's often spelled w e n d i g o but you'll see it spelled um w i n d i g o w h e e t i g o um and and all down the line there's a bunch of variations it's all the same term and uh so you'll see a lot of different terms if you're if you're digging into it, uh, Chinu, Kiwak, uh, Atchin, but uh, it's all the same entity. And just as there are different versions of the name of the entity, there will be a lot of variations depending on the particular mythos of the creature's appearance and powers. So um, sometimes Wendigos are described as uh, very gaunt and thin with exposed skull and skeleton pushing through kind of a mummy-like skin. Um, some stories describe it as a, as a large, fleshy giant or ogre who gets larger the more it eats. And then some legends have uh, Wendigo characterized as having animal-like ears with antlers or, horned, uh, antlers or horns uh, protruding from its head. And that's currently the one, if, if you're... You know, if you look at like Western cinema, the version visually that we will most often see. Uh, Wendigo's eyes are also supposed to be uh, traditionally described as sunken, sometimes glowing like hot coals, having this like ethereal fire behind them. And they're all often characterized with having very sharp and pointy teeth, um, bad breath and body odor. So the fact that there aren't more... Um, uh, mouthwash commercials with Wendigo <laughs> uh, creatures in them, like scope. Exactly get at yeah. me because you're really missing a marketing opportunity. I think I'm going to tag you when we do the social Perfect. media for this episode because I, it's a I got a script for you. Even Oral B. Honestly, yeah. If your marketing team are not coming up with Wendigo commercials, do you even have I mean, a marketing I team? I feel like there's also an Old Spice commercial. In all of this yeah, as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You have like Terry Crews doing like the pet yeah. flex, right? And, and then, then you get like, bitten off. And then like, but he, you know, hasn't eaten. And then he gradually <laughs> transforms 
in the in the commercial because I, I I imagine Terry Crews would become the right, Wendigo, right. not fight the Wendigo. This all tracks. Um, because well, why not? They could still bring back the the Slim Jim Bigfoot and then have him fight the uh, oh the God. Scope Wendigo. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, what, what do you do after you have a nice spicy Slim Jim? You gotta wash some scope down that uh, that dirty <laughs> mouth of yours. Yeah, because I think like there's a I don't know how much regional overlap there is in the mythologies, but they are both uh, forced dwelling. And Mm -hmm. I can imagine like a nice family of squatches, you know, just like chilling, exploring different forests. And they come across this like mean antlered thing that like really needs some tooth care, you know, some good dental hygiene. Not in like the the Charmin bear family that strangely needs so much toilet paper to take a shit <laughs> yeah, just and like, it needs to so be soft okay. this is this has to be like a whole like mascot or ad campaign cinematic universe situation going on <laughs> yeah, here yeah, absolutely. this is gonna be big this is, i have big plans for this well, you know, folks, uh, folks at home, just just know this: we we're still releasing this episode, despite the fact that we're gonna obviously be really rich really soon. <laughs> but until then, we're gonna have to bleep out these um, brand names here. Right, right. We're releasing it because we we love you, we care about you. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna be trademarking a whole lot of things in this episode. I I, I guarantee it. But okay, so yeah, you have a lot of uh, variations in uh, name and in sort of appearance and attribute, and and so you'll also have usually not always, but most commonly, Wendigos will be perceived as having vast superhuman strength and stamina, so they can overpower and consume their victims. Um, you know, all the hunting attributes: strong eyesight, hearing, sense of smell. They're supposed to be strong predators that have. I mean, they're extremely deadly, very quick. And uh, some some even posit that they can like walk across deep snow without sinking in it, which is really inconvenient for Legolas? us, honestly, but like a pretty cool trick. <laughs> exactly. They're elves. <laughs> Wendigo, you heard it here first. They're Lord <laughs> of the Rings elves. It's canon. And I hope they, I, I hear the Amazon show is yeah. going to be all about that. <laughs> and, the, and then the, the final interesting thing is uh, just about their attributes is that they're they're because they're supernatural in nature some legends posit that it can be killed with conventional weapons but then others claim that it has to have its uh, actually like be subdued and have its heart actually cut out and then destroyed um and then and then uh some tr- some first nations traditions posit that only like a, a shaman can can actually fully kill a, a wendigo um I in in all traditions, of course, I can kill a Wendigo. Of course, as the host of a monster podcast. I mean, I'd call you first anyway. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I've actually recently been thinking, like, I really need to know how to do an exorcism and how to like, dispatch various beasties because if I can't do, like, if I don't know how to do that, everybody's doomed. Because I'm the first people. I know a lot of people that would call me first. Who knows that? <laughs> Jeff knows that. Yeah, and I don't want to let them down. You have a responsibility. Yeah, what's the point of this show if it's not me becoming a new vampire hunter? <laughs> Wait, did you say new or nude vampire hunter? You know, it just depends on what the people vote for. <laughs> depends on the class of vampire, really. <laughs> Wait, 
Because there's still, you know, do I hunt vampires and I am unclothed, or do I only hunt vampires like when they're undressed? <laughs> that latter one's kind of rude, really. I would like to see this version of Interview with a Vampire. <laughs> I feel like it's the one Anne Rice really had wanted to make. I know, right? Nude interview with a vampire or interview with a nude vampire. She was uh, down with the pervy, which is why it was such a... It's why the novels are so good, because she gets it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the folks at home, don't worry. This is going to be a good episode, but I've been covering Sundance. We've all been super busy this last week plus, And so forgive me if I sound... Just a little bit chaotic. We yeah. all have collectively one brain cell working right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no, we're all just like talking about when it goes sitting around a campfire in the deep winter. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Everything's fine. Exactly. Because right now Squatch my brain is like in the forest. <laughs> like what happened to Papa Squatch? <laughs> oh, oh God. don't worry, little guy or girl. Um uh, yeah, because because right now I feel like my brain is exactly like I like my whiskey, real smooth. <laughs> and I just about finished my Slim Jim, which is Jim, the the skinny guy. Yeah, yeah, the Slim Jim. Anyway, yep, exactly. He needs to eat something. He's skin and bones, like a Wendigo. And <laughs> back to Wendigos. Yes, That's the only reason which I still have me, this I show. I have Listerine strips in my pocket. <laughs> Always be prepared. Uh, so the 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 Wendigo legend existed in Algonquin uh, oral history for centuries, way before Europeans arrived in North America. But the first European written account of a Wendigo was by Paula June, who was a Jesuit mi- uh, missionary who lived with the Algonquin fo- uh, people in in early 17th century uh, Quebec, what is now Quebec. And so he he wrote an, an early account of the Wendigo. Um, to his superiors in uh, 1636. So that's the, the, the first era of, of when it, it was transmitted to European peoples. And so it's it's kind of interesting because um, you, you have a lot of these like shape-shifting mythologies. The most popular one, of course, being, you know, werewolves are, are synonymous with shape-shifting. You'll have some rare examples of, of you know, where panthers or in um uh or, or where bears in, in some scandinavian cultural histories uh but it's definitely like in that shapeshifter tradition of of a thing that used to be a human and was transformed into a beast and so kind of conceptually fits in along in a lot of those um those traditions kind of the last thing that I'll, I'll mention is that one of the early um, influential stories in um, that was like fictional stories written with a Wendigo as a character was written um, by Algernon Blackwood uh, in first published in 1910 called the Wendigo and it was um, reportedly drawn from legends that he encountered during his own travels in the Canadian backwoods. So that was one of the first like literary, like influential pieces that, that kind of came about. Um, and we can, we can dig into a lot of the, the thematic issues with the cannibalism and what it means and all stuff that are, their attributes of the Wendigo. But I kind of want to take a pit stop and, and just start opening it up. Cause there, there's a lot of really, really good 
we're in like a really good period of time for for fans of the Wendigo of vicious cannibal beasts because in in a very short amount of time we went from not very many great cinematic adaptations of Wendigos to quite a few really good ones. It's it's almost just like filmmakers just collectively realize like, oh, that's kind of badass. We should just like do that. And now there's a bunch. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to open it up to the uh, to our fantastic co-hosts um, and talk about, you know, something that for this entity is really like spoke to you that you think is really cool, has a great take on the mythos. Um, who would like to go first? I'll kick it off. Badass. I really, like, I guess I didn't know much about the Wendigo. And I, I like, and I guess the, the challenge is that there are so many different versions, like you were saying, that you may never know all of them. And I mm-hmm. am not uh, Native American or First Nations, not of North America. So I don't have that um, that history. So I just found this creature fascinating and I connected to it so much because of the vengefulness that it they seemed to rue. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I gotta love a monster that that it like basically is a bottomless pit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I've seen it a few, you know, I've seen a couple different depictions, but one that I really enjoyed recently was a film called Don't Say Its Name uh, that came out last year. And well, I guess I don't know if it came out. I don't know if that's the right, but we saw it at, uh, it was in Fantasia Fest. Yeah. I don't. I actually couldn't figure out how to watch it again, so maybe it hasn't actually been released uh, yet. But, um, but I really enjoyed it, and it's a it's a film that follows a native community, and in this version or this depiction of the of the Wendigo, uh, actually I actually think they call it a Weedigo. Um, mm-hmm. It is. Uh, there's there's a backstory that I'm not going to get into and I don't want to um, ruin, but there's this environmental activism piece to the film that I really liked. And I liked that it was, it, it felt like the, um, the spirit was essentially saying like a massive fuck you to the colonizer, which... <laughs> I gotta say is one of my favorite themes in monster movies. (laughs) So, so anytime um, there is a monster, I mean, not only, not exclusively, right. But anyone that sides with uh, quote unquote, the wrong side of uh, preserving the earth, like using this, this monster in a vengeful way, I thought was a really fun version because typically you can't control uh, these monsters and and you don't I mean like you, you, you can't <laughs> they they do what they want um, mm-hmm. there are I think there are a couple tales of like slightly like encouraging a wendigo to go one in one direction or another but usually you don't mm-hmm. really get to have that say but having like using a wendigo as a weapon is 
pretty fantastic. So I really enjoyed that depiction, and it's super bloody and violent and delightful. Um, so I'm into yeah, it. Yeah, I love it. I, I thought it was like a, a really dramatically successful film. Yeah, I really liked its take. It had some uh, cool kind of elegantly used effects to demonstrate the Wendigo and its power. Uh, did Mike and uh, Andre, did you see it? Uh, I have not. Okay. Yeah, I, I saw it during uh, Fantasia. I liked it quite a bit. Um, I really want to see it again, but like Luna said, it's not easily findable. So I think it might be in that purgatory area of just like waiting to get put out there officially. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know when we will have the chance to see it again or for most audiences to see it for the first time. But this would be a great uh, get for like a Shutter exclusive to have another uh, native film, you know, because they did Blood Quantum about a year mm-hmm. or two ago. Uh, yeah, sometime I'm like that. Waiting for Shutter to get it essentially <laughs> just yeah i think they should absolutely but in general i guess moral of the story as i slowly uh melt into uh, my single brain cell that i will pass on to another co-host um <laughs> i want to use a wendigo as a weapon the end <laughs> that's my whole thing i love it yeah. um that's fantastic well thank you so much i, I think it's a great film and i i really love getting a chance to showcase, you know, indigenous and first nations filmmakers. Absolutely. And I think it's, especially when that's the folklore that's being drawn from just a win-win across the board. I'm glad we started there and I really love it. So thank you so much. Andre or Mike, do you have, you know, something that speaks to you that you'd like to talk about? Yeah. So I um, was going to uh, dive into the uh, pet cemetery book and movies which um, feature the Wendigo quite a bit. So um, I'm assuming y'all have seen at least one of the movie adaptations of Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Mary Lambert. And um, like, have y'all read the book? I have not. I have not. Okay. Um, so the book is... It's it's actually probably one of my favorite Stephen King books. Um, it's like, I feel like we all kind of have those books that really like stick with us and make a huge impact on us. And that certainly was Pet Cemetery. And I say this just to kind of segue into why I feel like both films are are good in their own way, but are not very good adaptations of the um the book um I, I, I for my money i think mary lambert like hits the um emotional beats uh the best out of the two but yeah um so the wendigo is actually a creature that kind of is featured in um a couple stephen king films or um books um, Pet Cemetery being the huge one, and then the other one being The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, which I have not read that. I'm not sure if y'all have. Mm-hmm. I actually, yeah, I actually have the um, Stephen King fandom wiki to help help me with that. So um, in the book, 
Yeah, like in the book, the Wendigo is, um, he he like I say he, but like the 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 uh, creature is is something that like is really more prominent in both adaptations. Um, like the Wendigo, kind of it, it's very clear that it's manipulating the events. Um, kind kind of the same way like Pennywise sort of. Um, manipulates the adults in dairy that's sort of the the same exact kind of thing here with the town of ludlow that's the uh, fictional town in maine of course so um there's this kind of thing that everybody sort of rags on the movie about which is like oh you know judd knows bad things happen when you bury somebody in the pet cemetery but he turns around and does it anyway and you know on the face of it on the face of it, that's a plot hole, right? But in the book, there's like a couple key scenes that sort of like explain why um, like Judd does this. Um, so one of them, one of it is so in the book, um, like Judd's wife is featured pretty pretty prominently in the book, and she's pretty much nowhere in the movies. A little a little bit in the, the newer one, but I'll get into that. But anyways uh it's halloween and she has a heart attack and lewis saves her so um judd um as a kind of a repayment helps him bury the cat and also it's heavily implied in the book um that this force uh in the woods you know the wendigo is what is sort of feeding him and and edging him on to do this like horrible thing um like in in the 2019 film it's interesting they have judd say it feeds on your grief like it being the wendigo and the spirits in the woods which i thought was pretty interesting yeah the book is so fantastic like it has of course a lot of time to go into a lot of backstory like there's some really excellent stuff with like Timmy, that's a little bit in the Mary Lambert book and movie, but is way cooler in the book. Like there's this amazing scene where before they before they all get together and kill Timmy, like he Timmy's like fully possessed by the Wendigo and is like spilling tea on everybody in town. Like all of their secrets, all of the horrible things that they've done. Um <laughs> Yeah, and it no, and it's it's such a chilling, creepy sort of scene. But again, like I understand with time and budget, you can't do everything. And so I I hear that they're doing um, a mini series of Pet Cemetery, which is honestly how it should be done. But yeah, so anyways, I like both films, but I also Mm -hmm. kind of there's also things that I super don't like about both films. I mean, it's a little bit spoilery from here on out from the, the 2019 film, but I fucking hate that ending so much. <laughs> Me too. Oh, um, I thought it's so cheesy. And oh, I like, liked it. Did you? Uh-huh. I just didn't like how they did it. I was like, everybody's <sighs> dead. Sweet. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, though, like, I feel like it's so goofy and it sort of undercuts. Again, I love the book so much. And 
you know, again, Mary Lambert's film, I will give her a lot of credit. She's she's the only one that's really nailed the emotional core uh, of, of the book. Maybe not like totally, but she definitely got the closest. And again, that ending just feels so out of left field and goofy. And it also kind of makes me feel like I wonder if there was some studio meddling because there are some really fun, wonderfully morbid things like the, the, um, you know, Lewis giving Ellie a bath. That whole scene is just so creepy. It's creepy and heartbreaking and morbid all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then like this, the next, I think it was like the very next scene where Ellie's doing this bizarre ballet in her funeral dress. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, it, it has some great stuff. And I like how the 2019 film it sh- does a little bit more with the Wendigo. Um, not as much as the book, um, but it, it's at least something. And I like how they lean more into the folk horror vibes. Um, but then it just kind of devolves into this like super, like the ending just feels super rushed and it becomes very kind of paint by numbers. And again, I, I think that it's not a great adapta- adaptation. I think like the Wendigo is such a fascinating like folklore cr- uh, creature. And I think Antlers is the only movie that I think really kind of nails that. Which yeah, I definitely want to talk talk about later, but um, for sure we will. So, what do you all think? Uh, like, what which one's your favorite, the nineteen eighty nine film or the twenty nineteen film, A Pet Cemetery? Well, by default, mine is the eighty nine because I haven't seen the twenty nineteen, but I, I'm always kind of um, biased when it comes to movies with Denise Crosby in it. So even if I had seen the 2019 one prior to this, I would probably still say the the Mary Lambert 1989 version, despite the fact that the uh, the main actor in that movie pretty much doesn't have uh, awful. any dynamic range whatsoever. Thank you. I, I <laughs> hate that. I, yeah, like I do not like him as Lewis Creed and um, it's Dale Midkift and he's like terrible. I hate to say that and be like that sort of blunt about it, but I think it's like the Lambert film has like the best and worst casting like Fred Gwynn as Judd. That's fucking incredible. Um, Mm -hmm. Lewis Creed. It's like you said, potato even gage is like he's amazing in that movie and then you actually feel terrible uh when that truck comes around the bend yeah i mean i didn't but i'm dead inside so. <laughs> i mean i love seeing the kid die but geez that one got to me Aww, um my people no i i feel like you're totally right on that like um again and you know and in the 2019 film I think the parents are really kind of meh, but the kids like the actress playing Ellie in the 2019 film is incredible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, like the parents, it's not that they're, it's not that the actors are bad. They're just bland. Like they're, it's not like great casting. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like the casting is serviceable, you know, like it's not incredibly inspired. It's not the best thing I could possibly, the best cast I could think of, but you know, the get the job done. And uh, I, I'm uh, with you to speak to something you mentioned earlier, uh, Mike. I definitely think that Pet Cemetery deserves uh, a series adaptation because, I mean, there's a reason why a lot of Stephen King adaptations are series, not films, or possibly like in the case of it, more than one film. Uh, because, I mean, okay, I love Stephen King. The man writes very detailed thousand plus page novels. that are loaded with backstory and mythos and interconnections and stuff trying to capture that in a in a nuanced way in two hours is impossible absolutely yeah and and it's a shame because again both films like cut corners like the scene with like well it, it it myths me to no end that they always cut judd's wife i believe her name is norma because her this pivotal scene that takes place during Halloween is sort of, again, it's like one of the main setups to why, you know, Judd kind of does this really stupid thing and takes Lewis up to the pet cemetery with, you know, with the cat church. And it's a shame because everyone's like, Oh, that's so dumb. You know, why would he do that? But like, it's not really the book's fault. King, understood that this was a plot hole that he needed to fill right so mm-hmm. you know it's like a twofold thing you know one again he was repaying um lewis for saving his wife and um also just because you know it, it hits home that the wendigo and these evil forces are very tempting and he again he knows uh, he shouldn't do it, but it's so alluring that it just happens. It's almost like fatalistic mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah, I don't know. It just bugs me because I just want a great adaptation. It's a book that has just had a, a crater like impact on me. And if y'all haven't read the book, like just drop everything and do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because it really is. I mean, it's one of those books that. Stephen King pretty famously was freaked out when he wrote it and socked it away in a drawer. And he only published it because I guess there was like, he had to contractually do one more book for, I can't recall which publisher. Um, And, you know, it it boggles my mind that you just have like finished manuscripts that you can plop out and turn in. But when you're a genius like Stephen King, that's, I guess, something that you, you have a little backlog, but anyways, like you can tell it's, it's one of his most personal uh, books. And I, I just think that in, in like an hour and 40 minutes, it's going to be hard to tell that detailed, dense, impactful kind of book into a movie. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely uh, think, especially with that backstory, because I find that um, the the Wendigo part of it is in in both films. I feel like really underutilized. Yeah, and it's a shame 
Because for me, I mean, okay, yeah, like it's creepy kid, creepy kid who's undead, comes back different. Yeah, okay, that's scary, I guess. Um, but the the deeper, powerful Wendigo mythos is a lot more frightening to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, even though that even I mean, I I don't really hate the 2019 film. I think it's OK, but I will give it a lot of credit. It does, as I say, try to at least do more with the Wendigo and a little more of like the folk horror um, stuff. Like there's some obvious references to like the Wicker Man, the original. And um, yeah, again, it's where I feel like the filmmakers wanted to do one movie and the studio kind of wanted another. And you can, you can feel like a weird mishmash of the two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, me, I'm all, this is going to surprise everyone. I hope everyone at home is sitting down. I'm always <laughs> the guy being like, hmm, this is good. This is good. But more monsters, please. <laughs> Shocked. I'm glad everyone's sitting down. I hope nobody fainted. <laughs> um, it's like, so like, hmm, can you add more than the Wendigo? <laughs> like, can we have a Squatch? Squatch. Yeah. Can we have oh. a Slim Jim moment? Exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, like pet cemetery, but with like, oh, you know what? Someone gets buried in the pet cemetery, comes back a squatch. That's what happened. Yep. It makes so much sense now. But yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. I think the original is probably my favorite, even though I don't a hundred percent buy. Like the kid's too cute in the movie. Yeah. Which one? In the in the Both original. Uh, and the original particularly he's just so he does a good job for like a little guy it's a really good performance but like he's too fucking cute and i'm never scared of him you know yeah like i'm always just like oh i'll just pinch those little murder cheeks yeah um yeah and then i feel like we all need to do our best like fred win main accent god sometimes dead is sometimes dead is better (laughs) sometimes accents are better oh well you know no not than yours than his oh (laughs) i was like damn that's shady (laughs) no you you know i'm always you you get a blank check from me to do accents you know that i was like it was so funny because like i was Telling my husband, I was like, I was watching this movie, and like he worked that in, he worked that into the conversation like all day, <laughs> and I love it, you know. That's <laughs> perfect. I have, to, I have to be a little bit off topic for a second, but when we were talking about the Wendigo, like we mentioned it, and so folks at home, if if you follow me on Twitter, you've probably discovered that I have two very cute little dogs at home. And one of them is like my best friend. Like he is follows me around the house. He's the best little dude in the world. Um, but we mentioned the Wendigo and the door for the office doesn't a hundred percent like latch. And so it was flung violently open <laughs> and no one was there when I looked. Oh, and so I'm like, huh? But then like my dog uh, Murphy decided that I was spending too little time with him. 
and he like shoved the door open with effort apparently and then like he's small enough that i couldn't see him through the desk he just pops out from under the desk i'm like okay no when to go attack that's good (laughs) but the little guy had me a little worried for a hot second yeah i would have been in fight or flight mode i don't know i think you should keep an eye on that guy well i mean i i don't really stress uh beasties that much creatures because it's me and you know, I figure I can either befriend it because why wouldn't I be able to? And if not, I probably know how to kill it, you know? Yeah. So whatevs, I'm good, you yeah. know? Wendigo wants to hang out. I don't want to have it over for dinner because I know what it eats. Peoples. <laughs> <laughs> the people. Also, before we pivot, I want to say that regardless of how you feel about either Pet Cemetery. I feel like we can all agree that the Ramones um, Pet Cemetery slaps so hard. That's one of the best yeah, things, absolutely. Of the best parts of that movie. Hundred percent, absolutely agree. Um, <laughs> it's the their their Pet Cemetery song is my favorite adaptation of the Wendigo myth. It's not, but well, <laughs> and, and you know what's kind of what what's kind of cool is, is that that is actually kind of a. a cute little easter egg for the book because the ramones are name checked in the book like a bunch of times <laughs> yeah stephen king the is a huge like, fan of the ramones oh that's cool yeah um uh, yeah i love it i'm so glad you brought that one up um i think those two really strong starts um andre is there is there anything that um i know i'm putting you on the spot doesn't have to be yes but um is there anything like in in uh the cultural landscape that adapted the Wendigo myth that, that really speaks to you that we haven't talked about. Oh, were you talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> he's just like, <laughs> no. Wonder, right? he's just like, like actually, he's just like, no, no. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Actually, I have something here. Um, I've been quite a big fan of the, the Wendigo myth as I've known it um, for a long time, but, the, the film that made me really realize and solidified that uh, that affection towards this uh, scary, super creepy monster is uh, Antonio Bird's uh, Ravenous from, what is it, 1999? Mm-hmm. I think so. That's I a good one. Uh, just because it, it, it tells the story of failed colonialism in the lens of the the usual uh, like would-be do-gooder in like in a military standpoint where uh, this guy is being celebrated for surviving like this gigantic attack that happened i think this is a spanish-american war um and he knows that the only reason he stayed alive is because he pretended to be dead he just played dead and just watched uh all of his his compatriots die he was piled up into like a huge pile of dead bodies that they were going to set on fire he crawled out and he just like rode to the nearest um, base or uh, bunker or something like that. So 
his journey to uh, like the next station that he's um, sent to as he sees it as a punishment, but the military sees it as like a, uh, like a promotion. Um, but at this outpost, there's like barely anything going on. He seems like they just sent him out there to die uh, because they knew what he did. And all of a sudden, one like wintry night, this figure comes out of the distance and needs shelter, food, uh, a fire, something like that. And tells a story about this, uh, this company that he was out traveling with, I think for the same army and that each one of them succumbed to, um, the elements basically. And he couldn't find any food or anything else. They didn't even know where they were anymore. They were kind of lost, almost supplicating a, um, a Donner party situation where they ran out of their food supplies. Um, and they just couldn't find anywhere to, uh, you know, like find food from. (laughs) (laughs) So he says that other people resorted to eating each other. And when he mentions uh, the temptation, like something in his eyes just like flash over. Um, And then from there, you can kind of guess where the movie's going to go. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting refocusing of the Wendigo. Uh, In this film, there are no uh, native characters. Everyone is pretty much a white colonialist um, member of the military. Yeah. And, you know, it's also surprising that all of this just kind of comes back to bite them in the asses almost literally but not literally shown but you know the rump roast has some of the juiciest of meats (laughs) (laughs) an amazing score uh written by damon albarn and uh someone else but (laughs) damon albarn mostly uh most people would recognize his work from uh, the band blur or gorillas and it's, it's just a weird, idiosyncratic score. Uh, it really underlines some of the humorous beats. And for some reason, I, I see this movie in the, almost in like a tandem juxtaposed avenue that, uh, <laughs> you might laugh at this, but it's a Cannibal the Musical from the Trey Parker and Matt Stone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, love it. It's, the, it's almost the same uh, story idea that like spirals out uh you could even put in like those trapper characters as part of robert carlyle's character's backstory uh and it would still kind of fit if he was just like yeah i killed him and ate him oh spoilers (laughs) (laughs) but no it's it's such a fun movie um great cast uh yeah i mean I can't recommend it enough. I don't want to talk about it too much more because the, it's not like a heavily spoiled movie, but uh, going into it as blind as possible is what I would recommend, really. 
That's awesome. I actually, um, I know, I've been in a room when it was playing before, <laughs> but I was not watching it, so I, yeah, I feel um, like I can still go in blind. <laughs> yes, I, I think you should. And going a little bit further about the representation of Wendigo, I appreciate that it doesn't do a, um, a transformation scene or like a monster shot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's not really a costume or anything like that. It's, it's the evils of men and it, it relegates all of the horrors of like consumption, fatigue, um, even like emaciation and uh, desire and avarice as well. Because oh, there's yeah. a glory that these characters are lusting for. And mm. you can kind of guess that it's always just out of reach for one reason or another. So yeah, I think it's really brilliant in that uh, illustration of, I guess, th- there's also a... Um, there's a psychosis that is specific to like the Great Lakes of Canada and um, Michigan, I think. Uh, it's just called like the Wendigo syndrome. Yeah, I've heard about yes. it. Wendigo psychosis, um, and it's like people who believe that they might be turning into one or have turned into one, and they display characteristics that they know to be exclusive to Wendigo. And mm-hmm. I would say that this is likely what's going on in Ravenous, but it could also be otherworldly. It's up to the viewer, really. And that's what I think that this movie's strongest uh, point is in terms of adapting like the Wendigo myth. And it does it smartly for um, a bunch of white characters, mm. even though it's directed by a woman. She's a white woman. So... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a white lens for um, criticizing the white lens, which is mm-hmm. I love it. One of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah. I also really dig. I, I think that um, the ambiguity actually really works for this particular entity in in ways that it might not work for some, because it because the Wendigo is a a transformed used to be human. Um, I think that that conceptual line is a little more interesting for this sort of thing uh, to leave it kind of up in the air a bit, Mm -hmm. you know, than it might otherwise be. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Can I, and the the superhuman, I just want to share a, um, uh, a peek into my one bouncing brain cell uh, <laughs> briefly, and then we can continue to be very serious podcasters. But <laughs> has anyone ever noticed that the word is like rave and then new, like French meaning us. So it's, it's our party. You just, we're having a great time and then we eat each other. It's, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. It makes me so happy. It's so stupid. It, it's it's a dinner party, quite frankly. Rave time. Okay, I'm sorry. All right, let's, let's be very serious now. I need to mute myself again. Well, no, that, that's actually um, interesting because it, the movie does start with a dinner party of sorts. 
so no, I mean your your brain cell is onto something here. It's on. It's on. It's on something. It's. On. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look. Honestly, I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. Everything's um, fine. Continue. But yeah. <laughs> But uh, uh, thank you all for those um, suggestions. I think they're all really cool and different takes on on the sort of cultural mythos. And it kind of makes sense that there's so many different takes because there's so many different variations on... It, it's a very complex tapestry as, as far as uh, mythological entities goes, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty sweet. Uh the one that I kind of want to talk about is the one of the more recent ones, the the most recent one that I'm aware of, which is uh, Scott Cooper's Antlers, produced by my main monster man, uh, Guillermo del Toro, and it's um, pull up my review of it. I'm sorry, did you say produced? He produced it. Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, um, which is cool because the, the screening that I saw, he was there. Um, Oh, cool. And I, I didn't ugly cry too much, which is cool. Because um, I'm still a professional at the end of the day. <laughs> but um, uh, he co-produced it, by the way. Uh, so it's it, it takes place in this small, um, um, almost certain fictional Central Oregon town uh, where this uh, this woman played by... Uh, julia she she's played by carrie russell um she's a she's a teacher that grew up there but had a just a terribly abusive uh, father he died so she came kind of back to to reunite with her brother uh, played by jesse plemons and she's a, a teacher at this small town um school and there's a young boy lucas who she um notices is coming to school um disheveled uh very quiet he's a, he's a bright kid but he's obviously not doing well and to her it reads as classic telltale signs of abuse so what happened was his his father and and this scene kind of is the opening for the thing so i'm not giving anything away uh his father was he had a single dad and a younger brother and his dad basically made money making meth in this abandoned mining facility. Right. And so in the beginning of the film, he's showing up there and then uh, his son is in the truck bed kind of waiting outside. And as he's making uh, meth, he from from he hears something unnatural from deep in the bowels of the the mining facility that's otherwise abandoned mm-hmm. and so turns out it's a scary thing and instead of killing him it kind of infects him um and uh i won't you know it's not i could go much farther than that it's not really a spoiler because all the stuff happens we find out very early but he's um He's becoming, he was infected by the Wendigo. I'll just put it that way. Okay. And it's more complex than that. Um, but that's what, he's locked up in Lucas's, young Lucas's house in the attic. And um, 
So Lucas has to like hunt for it and, and he's disheveled. He's like running the home by himself. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the abuse dynamic that, um, Carrie Russell's character sees. And it's just, uh, it's an interesting take on the narrative in a lot of ways. Um, because it's using this monstrosity, this developing monstrosity as a metaphor for abuse and its transmission and its effects. Mm -hmm. And, um, very obviously it's using that as a metaphor, but it's also kind of interesting because the father, yeah, he's like making meth and stuff, but by all accounts before we, when we see him before his transformation, he's not an abusive dad. Like he's a single father, but like a loving one. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of, he transforms into this thing. And Lucas's younger brother also has been, infected uh we find that out soon too um and so it's it's uh that's obviously not part of the traditional mythos really but other than that it's um a very uh faithful grounded in the mythology interpretation of the thing and i really like it um overall yeah, I um, I, it's funny when you said about pulling up your review. I also pulled up my my Geek Vibes review for it um, yeah, yeah. in October of last year, and um, yeah, like I totally agree. Like I feel like it is a great creature feature. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes the um, story is a little inconsistent. Mm -hmm. um, but goddamn, that has one of the best recent jump scares. I know we were talking about this <laughs> earlier. Um, yeah. Which I, I know it was funny because you saw it first and you had even said, like, there's a jump scare. I'm not going to say when, but you'll know it when it happens. And yeah. yeah. I think specifically, <laughs> I, I was like, this is junk because, okay. This is a monster podcast. We cover a lot of horror. Um, we're all horror fans, every single one of us. And, you know, Mike and I literally watch horror movies for a living, basically, um, among other things, but that's part of it. And so jump scares don't super get probably any of us anymore. Yeah. Right. And it had a jump scare that was the first one to get me in fucking years. <laughs> I wish I could. And I was like, well, goddamn. Like I literally was like checking my heart for a second, and um, and, and that I, sounds like yeah, and it sounds like an exaggeration, but it really isn't because you know I know so like Jeff, I know you're you know I don't I know you're not one for like hyperbole, so I know when you say like this. yeah, so like it, it it's kind of cool knowing that going in because i was like oh i was like waiting for it i was like oh shit like mm -hmm. when's the and I, I won't spoil it obviously but there's like a nice misdirection yeah they, they do a the reason i think it's so effective other than it was just very well executed overall uh and the, the by the way that the wendigo design is amazing yeah uh but part of the reason for me that it was so effective is because, like you're saying, they do a really good job of controlling your attention in the scene. So even if you're waiting for it, because I saw it a second time at theaters, even if you're waiting for it, they do a good job of like putting you in a state where you're not 
anticipating it like you're not braced for it because they've been controlling your attention it's really good filmmaking in that scene yeah that's the thing about jump scares like you know it's gonna happen so you're just like you have a a timer counting down from whenever Mm -hmm. and you're just like come on let's do it let's rip off this band-aid let's get it done i just want to watch the movie so Mm -hmm. they're always a point of anxiety for me in watching a movie yeah, but I'm looking forward to it. I haven't seen Antlers, but I, I did either. follow the. I'm into it. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did follow um, the character design though, uh, I have yeah. seen it. It looks really fucking cool. Um, yeah, like they they it has a ton of detail. Um, and one of the things I like is that the the titular, titular ant, antlers, you know. Um, mm-hmm are not just like deer antlers, which is, you know, fine, right? Because it's still a, a, a beastie. But it, it um, they're obviously distinctly antlers, but it comes across as more like an entirely different species take on, like, like there's something off about them too. It's not just like put deer antlers on a head, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's cool. Um, I'll, just before we pivot, like, uh, so it's, Guillermo del Toro produce. So since you've seen it, Jeff, like, do you, can you, do you feel like you can feel his um, influence? Um, Uh, Even though he didn't write it, he just produced it. I feel like in some ways I can, in some ways, like not as much as I expected. Um, Yeah. Cause, okay. So visually, yes, it definitely has that like, like atmospheric like cinematography it hasn't a hundred percent it's really great on that front um i actually really like a lot about the movie but it's definitely not a dark fantasy vibe which is something he likes to do and i also think that the analogy for abuse and monstrosity and the wendigo um is uh doesn't really work in the film because the young son, the, like the boy was infected as well. And so yeah. that makes the metaphor straight up not work or it works. If what it's trying to say is actually like a really terrible thing to say about a victim of abuse. Yeah. I will say that it kind of has this very, like even when my, re- my review, I was looking over it and it's like this thick layer of depression and desperation that kind of hangs on the entire film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, even though like Guillermo del Toro is known for like, you know, being like whimsical and, you know, he could also be very dark too, very, not just, yes. you know, thematically and visually sometimes. And I could, I could co- sort of feel his influence at least on that kind of, not yeah. really just aesthetically, but just more like how oppressive everything felt. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I think I think the difference for me where you can tell that it's not his take is he explores in a lot of his films like monstrosity and as counterposed against human monstrosity. That's something that he does a lot. But when it comes to dealing with like child characters... Um, oftentimes he'll treat them with a, a, a reverence, put them as like, um, you know what I mean? Like where, Absolutely. 
they are yeah. not the thing in the dark they're you know protected often they're protected right mm -hmm. if anything valorized you know um i do think that the the young protagonist lucas great performance by the way um yeah. like one of the best there's a, so many good performances from children this year but uh man that kid jeremy t thomas nailed it for a young actor he's treated in a very sympathetic light but the fact that they're using it as a metaphor for monstrosity and the little brother is turning into a thing is not something del toro would do yeah no that's a great point um like i had not i guess maybe maybe subconsciously i picked up on that but like that's interesting because you're you're 100 percent right on that yeah, and so, and for the record, for the folks at home, I really like the film. I do. I gave it an overall positive review. I did mention this in my review. Um, I love the design, the cinema, the, the vibe is is. I I lived in Oregon for a long time, uh, for like eight years maybe, and maybe. Uh, it's been <laughs> a long knows? life, Luna. Don't. don't like <laughs> it's been a long. I've, I've seen things, man. There. I've seen things, man. No. Um, uh but uh it, it has really really great it captures that very well i just think that thematically i have a couple conceptual issues that were entirely avoidable but overall yeah. it's still a good film absolutely worth watching you know yeah i'm excited to watch it says. yeah i would love to to hear like you and andre i would love to you're both very uh thoughtful film viewers and and really really great at like you know interrogating like thematic um elements of of these sorts of films and i uh would love to hear your take if you kind of see it the same way that i do or not absolutely yeah i yeah. i'm very curious based on everything that i've heard right now i'm just like well i have to watch this film because i wonder if i will see those themes in the same way because mm -hmm. i'm often the odd lady out sometimes where i'm like yeah i didn't see that <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, it, which is why, and also i know that you love um stories with kind of like eerie children and stuff in them 100 percent. Um, yeah i'm sorry there are dead kids i'm in yeah absolutely <laughs> dead kids ghost kids what have you yeah. Um, this one's got monster kid monster and non-monster kid. kid. It's got every kind of horror kid. And like <laughs> uh, you, you were talking about an oppressive tone of desperation and depression, and I'm like, oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, are yeah. you trying to? Like, like, uh, uh, yes, maybe. please. Yeah, that's that's spot on, Mike. That's exactly kind of what hangs over the air and the trauma and. Yeah, it, it's just it. like even from like I mean something I noted in my review is like from like moment one to the like the end credits there's just it's just overwhelming at times that you just feel like everybody's mm -hmm. in this spiral of desperation and loneliness and fighting to survive yeah and then like carrie russell's character is obviously traumatized right and uh you know she doesn't really i don't remember her giving in but like it's one of those places where it's like a small town store and every time you can see like her think real hard about drinking and then she doesn't do it and you can like her performance is really good because she really sells that like tortured traumatized but like good-hearted person who's seen shit um 
Ooh, I'm so excited to watch this. She's great. Um, it's a very unconventional uh, sequel to Waitress. But... <laughs> <laughs> but they went some bold places and did some bold things. No, um, but more seriously, quick spoiler alert for the folks at home. Um, this is a really specific scene it doesn't really spoil the ending but just you know you'll fast forward like five minutes if you don't want to know anything more um we find out so like i mentioned her dad was dead but there's one scene where like it leaves it kind of really ambiguous if he just like got sick and died or did like she kill him Mm. was a thought that i had and um because she has this one like kind of flashback where it almost feels like it doesn't explain the death, but it's like, that looks like some fucking asshole got poisoned is what it looks like. Um, and I really hope she killed the fuck out of that fucker. Like, <laughs> Oh my God. I just really hope that he gets like gored by a Wendigo forever. Like, can someone get gored by a Wendigo forever? I hope so probably like like on a loop there's a list yeah, you know you just have to that. ask yeah. the right people the right way with enough cash yeah i'll be like wendy wendy hey wendy um, <laughs> wendy's by the way is as a franchise was started by a family of wendigo um <laughs> this episode is not sponsored by wendy's <laughs> <laughs> but honestly if, i'm gonna totally tweet them about it because they will probably respond because they're a social yeah, media game that's a great... wendigos are great social media yeah Absolutely. yeah i, I want to say that ad for the bacon eater <laughs> yes exactly like it's, um, exactly just like the bacon eater it's not not people <laughs> bacon eater now with long pork <laughs> yeah oh somebody did a wendigo uh mashup logo for wendy's and i'm so here for that <laughs> <laughs> you gotta retweet that shit. Yeah. I, I just wanted to say a quick thing about Antlers. Uh, not having seen the movie, but seeing the monster design, uh, I read an article about the creation of the monster uh, by Heather Wixon. She does a lot of uh, journalism surrounding makeup effects, creature effects, and performers. And I was able to read it without really spoiling anything for myself, except for what the creature looks like. Uh, And I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to uh, spoil that for anyone who is waiting to see the movie, not knowing at all what it looks like. Um, But the thing that they did with the heart of the creature, I think is a really cool visual design and I'm wondering if it has anything to do with one of the reasons for the genesis of the creature, which is like greed, avarice, mm-hmm. especially given what the heart is made of. Um, because one of the Algonquian legends describes um, the Wendigo as a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's thought to be made entirely of ice. Uh, like its body is skeletal, deformed, missing lips and toes, but is basically a walking 
glacier that eats people. Mm-mm. So I wonder if elements can uh, incorporate its way into the creature too. Yeah, I, you know, I, that would be... Um, I could see that because I know that there, there's a more aquatic variation too. I don't mm-hmm. remember which which people has it. Um, might be. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to speculate because I don't quite remember. Um, I thought it was in my notes, but it's not. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that might make sense because all these different variations over a very large territory have the same kind of thematic core with with cannibalism being kind of like a catalyst for this monster's transformation but there are totally like uh very wide variations in how they're pictured so i could absolutely i don't think that's made clear but i'm i'm absolutely i could definitely see that okay yeah one of the really interesting things to me as i read more about wendigo is that that greed and gluttony and just non-stop hunger and carnage and i i find it interesting in the sense of um and with at least like in my experience uh with my parents and stuff these sorts of monsters are supposed to be some sort of cautionary you know, mm-hmm. part of some cautionary tale, typically, right? Like, right. you, you, uh, at least for me, and not the Wendigo specifically, but there are, there are creatures in the islands that are similar or are terrifying or they kill small children or whatever. And it's always some sort of cautionary, you know, campfire story, right? And mm-hmm. so it makes me think about if that's the case for Wendigo what is it warning against? I mean, warning against greed and, um, and selfishness likely Mm -hmm. where you need to think of others in the family, um, Mm -hmm. think of others in the village, in the community. Don't be the greedy person or you'll become a Wendigo. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's I mean, I, I don't know. I'm I'm speculating, right? So like mm-hmm. or or is it is it but I could see the application uh being widely applicable because in the communities like that with small, you know, close knit communities, everyone knows each other there can be a lot of finger pointing um, in times of strife, right? And that can happen, mm-hmm. I mean, literally anywhere all the time. It happens mm-hmm. in my family. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. it could be an interesting way to address finger pointing, but also be part of the problem in that sort of scenario as well, uh, where you can accuse someone of being too greedy or too selfish uh but there but it's really not that sort of situation so i just i wonder i i wish that i i had a you know closer ties with indigenous folks 
in this country because um, I would love to learn more about their experiences growing up and how mm-hmm. they heard about a Wendigo and how how they learned what what they are and what they do. Yeah, yeah, I I, I know. Like, I, I really would love to do um, a, a deep, like, a, or like a genuinely deep dive into particular folklores and like North American indigenous folklores and First Nation folklores are, are definitely something that I would love to explore more. But that's the type of thing where I would really want to get some different, for example, like either like uh, indigenous scholars or um, filmmakers or some such like from some of these regional areas to to be on the show mm-hmm. because I I'm not an expert in this. Like for me, I'm I'm a I'm a fan, you know, right. of folklore and of these different entities and 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 mythoses and and religious beliefs and but i'm not of any of these these tribes and they're also distinct with their even though there's like a regional patterning of certain types of things like lots of tribes have a sasquatch myth mm-hmm. lots of tribes mm-hmm. have a variation on the wendigo myth they're all very distinct and individual and it's very grounded you know like right. i wouldn't want to essentialize yeah absolutely so it's like how in in different parts of north america how how what is the practical application of the wendigo myth like what does that look like it's Mm -hmm. a you know it's a question that obviously won't be answered on this episode but i'm curious i just wanted to um, share my curiosity yeah because it's interesting too because like obviously there's because of the frequent grounding in cannibalism as well as like the first terrible act all sorts of cultures around the world have different ghosts or creatures or or entities of some kind that emerge from a cannibalist act so like obviously that's a major prohibitive terrible act right and has been you know like there's certain core myths that are common Every every independent mythology, religion, whatever, has something telling you not to do incest, has something telling you not to be a cannibal, you know? Like, don't kill your family, don't engage in patricide, matricide. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. there's some of these common things that are like society, all the things where like society would break down if we did them, have like core mythologies. Like, you'll turn into this, you fucking cannibal. Yeah, like, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So there's, it, it's clear that it kind of came from that tradition right and um but then it means so much more yeah because it's like you said it starts with cannibalism but often i mean that it goes into greed and and gluttony as well so then that's a Mm -hmm. whole other cautionary tale yeah (laughs) yeah It, it, it could be separate greed gluttony then leading to cannibalism or it could be a saying that greed could eventually lead to something so taboo as cannibalism. Right. Yeah. Like a slippery slope situation. Yeah. And then I, I, I'm also curious about the role of the colonizer in these tales, right? So how, if we have 
you know, this, this warning, don't be greedy. Don't, don't be that person. Mm -hmm. Like, is it like, is there also that unsaid part, part of this where it's or said or explicit, you know, I don't know, but don't be greedy like them. Like they take and they take and they take and they take. And when we do something like that, we turn into this. Right. Right. And it's interesting too, because I think in some variations of the Wendigo belief, and this is an antlers as well in their take, um, part of the curse of the Wendigo is that it, it inherently, it's always hungry, always has to consume, but the more it eats, the hungrier it gets. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so like these predatory, like predatory consumption isn't fulfilling. It's just a curse, you know? Right. And it also means that if you run into a Wendigo, it's not going to stop. Like it means that it will never stop. Right. Mm -hmm. Or you run into a force like it or, or you're worried that something is, is crossing into that threshold. Just, be aware that there will be no end. Yeah. I have a thought yeah. about um I, I'm just curious how far or how soon and like just like Luna said, we're not gonna be answering any questions in this about uh what we have to wonder about the the genesis of this legend but i i just wonder how close to the beginning of telling the wendigo myth either as a cautionary tale or as a believed thing um how close the beginning of that is to the appearance and interloping of uh colonizers from like Europe and surrounding countries to then expand because the, the legend is very synonymous with um, this dichotomy of consumption and uh, emaciation, like never being able to satiate a specific appetite. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always mm-hmm. looking for more uh, on the verge of dying of starvation but never succumbing to it as long as there's something there. Um, So I wonder if it's a, um, maybe not a warning among groups that one of you might turn into a Wendigo, which could be construed that way too. And like, I'm just um, wondering aloud, but it could also be warning of, uh, trusting someone who isn't like you that comes Mm -hmm. into your uh, community. Right. And that, that insatiable hunger piece makes me think about addiction and like, where does the Wendigo myth fit into addiction, which is a huge issue. Mm -hmm all over North America, but particularly in marginalized groups, including the indigenous populations. 
and I wonder like in the modern sense where where this myth fits how do how would you use this myth or would you at all when warning your children about addiction um that's actually uh, that's super insightful because i i I think it is a really organic metaphor for that sort of um affliction if you will you know because i mean what is an addiction other than a hunger that can never be satiated right yeah it also falls into greed a little bit too depending on the nature of the addiction and and certainly the social kind of risk the the social construct that we've created where we often say that addicts are greedy like it's not true but that's right that's how we that's how they're you know treated by society um Mm -hmm. and it's yeah anyway i just Mm -hmm. all of these things are is this is why I wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. Shit. Now I, I wish, uh, I got, Oh man. Can I like do like an, a cut of antlers where it's not about abuse. It's like a metaphor for addiction. Cause that would be super <laughs> fucking powerful. Yeah. It's not like right. there's a character struggling with that. And we yeah, mentioned like, men. So I was like, huh? Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. And know. Carrie Russell's character is clearly struggles with alcohol addiction. She yeah. doesn't partake, but it's obvious in the way they shoot her that, you know, she really thinks about it hard every single time, you right. know, like it's a struggle. And so, um, damn, love it. Uh, well, uh, folks at home, uh, I, we, we unfortunately have to wrap, but thank you so much for, for listening. That's food for thought. Um, uh, what antlers should have been like. No, um, <laughs> but, no 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 it's it's a good film check it out uh and and you know i don't know at me at twitter and be like jeff you are so spot on or jeff you are an idiot or jeff i'm turning into wendigo help what can i do (laughs) um and i'll uh i'll chat with you about it but yeah thank you um to our illustrious co-hosts because that went to some really thoughtful places uh as I fucking love it. It's great. And um, thank you all for, for being here. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yep. And um, and tell the folks at home um, where we can, uh, where we can find you, find people's, um, people's creatures, however you, you, you choose to, to live your life. Cool by me. Um, Luna, you first, if you will. Sure. Uh, yeah, you can find me at Luna underscore Minwi, M-I-N-U-I-T, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, I've been insanely busy, but I would love to hear from anyone that has things to say. I will be, um, I'm working on a show right now that will be uh, on stage in March in Richmond. So if you are in the Richmond, Virginia area, uh, hit me up because there's some really cool stuff happening over here. Love it. I would recommend it. Super cool. Um, thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to go like bottom to top in the, uh, the lovely Zencaster timeline. Uh, Mike, how about you? 
good sir. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Strange Cinema sixty five. Um, I also have a book called The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema that you can uh, find on Amazon. And I have a new video series um, for Geek Vibes Nation, and you can check that out um, on uh, Geek Vibes Podcast, uh, the YouTube channel. So definitely check that out. I would recommend it. Um, Mike, as always, you do excellent work, and uh, check that out. Thanks for being here as well. Um, Andre, good sir. Uh, How can they at you? You can at me on Twitter at demoni disco it is demoni disco i mean <laughs> i'm not gonna spell it uh, i'm also on letterboxd as hamburger harry i try to write a little bit about every movie that i watch and it's a lot so you don't have to look at it if you don't want to i do write some long reviews that i put up over on medium uh under the name celluloid consomme so you could go to celluloidconsomme.medium.com if you want to read those. Love it. Thank you so much. And uh, folks at home, you can find me on, I'm most active on Twitter at RealJeffEwing, R-E-E-L. And you can find me at uh, Forbes and Looper and Slashfilm when I I put all that stuff online. And uh, you can also find me here, which you know, because you already did. Um, thanks for spending some time with us and uh, if you see a Wendigo run or just <laughs> when to get out of there Slim Jim you're like at that I'm I was ready for that. once more I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening from the dawn of record human civilization we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization. The need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. (laughs) 